0: You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. Last week we went through chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Just a little background of what we read in case you weren't with us last week. Esther 1 depicts the story of this deposed queen in the Persian Empire, Queen Vashti. It's the most powerful empire in the world at that time. It had taken over from the Babylonian Empire. Most of the Jews at that time were living in and around what we would now call Palestine, Israel. But they were not in charge of their own country anymore because the Persian Empire was in charge of them. Queen Vashti gets deposed, then this elaborate search for the next queen happens, and this Jewish woman at the center of the Persian Empire, Esther, gets promoted to be queen. Now she's kept her Jewish identity hidden, and that's really important to what we read today. This is the beginning of Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had done so commanded concerning him but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai why do you transgress the king's command and when they spoke to him day after day he would not listen to them They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This is the word of the Lord. In Tolkien's great epic, The Lord of the Rings, the little hobbit Frodo is tasked with destroying an evil ring, and he has to do it and reach all the way to the center of enemy territory. It's a task that labors on him and wears on him, and at some point he laments to it, and he speaks to the wizard Gandalf, and this is what he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, this growing evil. Gandalf responds, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. There's a lot of wisdom in that. None of us decides what era we live in and what evils we shall face. The only thing we get to decide is how we're going to respond to whatever evils we do face. My grandparents' generation faced the evils of the Axis powers during World War II the generation after that reckoned with the evils of segregation and communism. And now we face the greed and destructive nature of consumer capitalism. We could name any other number of the big evils, and I like to pick on big tech, you know that. We could go all the way down to the personal and private evils that sometimes go unnamed that we face. Regardless, I think all of us face evil in our time. However small, however big, we face evil to some extent, and the only op- option we get is what to do with the evil that we have to face in the time that is given to us. Such is the theme of our passage today in Esther. So this morning, I just have two points for you. That we face an evil time, and the measure of an evil time. That we will face an evil time, and the measure of an evil time. So first, that we will face An evil time. Let me review what we just read, those six verses in chapter three. There's a new political leader, a a right-hand man of King Ahasuerus, and his name is Haman, and he's an Agagite. That's an ancient descendant of this tribal clan called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were often at war with the people of Israel, particularly in King Saul's time. And this man, Haman, gets promoted to this super high ranking in the Persian Empire. And in verse 2, this newly elected or elevated Haman makes all the lower officials bow down to him. Now, this would not have been unusual in that day and time. Lower officials often bowed down to higher officials. But we learn that Mordecai, Esther's cousin, he's not going to do it. He's not going to bow down. In verse 4, it says it's because he's a Jew. Now, commentators are divided as to why he would make this a reason because it's not necessarily clear in the text. Because it wasn't unusual for a lower official to bow to a higher official, why won't Mordecai do it because he's a Jew? So we're left with a couple of options. One option is that Haman is, according to himself, some kind of divine status. And Mordecai then, as a Jew, doesn't want to break the first commandment to have no other gods before Yahweh, and so he's not going to bow down. That's not in the text, but it's possible that it could have happened. Another possibility of what's going on here is that Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai. Mordecai knows his history really well, and he knows that the Jews have often been at odds with the Amalekites and Haman here, an Agagite, and so he is rekindling old divisions, old religious, ethnic, cultural divisions, and he doesn't want to bow to somebody that he thinks is still at war. With the people of Israel. So he's not gonna bow. Regardless of the reasoning, we know that it's not just Mordecai's personal opinion. It's not just some personal thing that he has against Haman. He is making it about his whole ethnic identity. And Haman takes him at face value. Because Haman doesn't just want to destroy Mordecai. In verse 6, it says he wants to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom, including the Jews that would have returned to Jerusalem. And the Persian Empire has the power to do this. Haman doesn't want to just destroy Mordecai. He wants to destroy all the Jews. So now let me summarize the rest of the chapter. We're not going to read the rest of chapter 3. But let me summarize it briefly. In verses 7 through 11, Haman then begins to throw dice, basically, lots called poor to discern when is he going to approach King Ahasuerus about his plan to destroy all the Jews. And eventually that happens. Presumably, he rolls the dice on the proper day and finally decides to speak to King Ahasuerus and tells him, I wanted to destroy all the Jews. This is what I want to do. And to kind of sweeten the pot a little bit for the king, he says, I'll pay you a bunch of money if you'll let me do it. And the king thinks, well, that's good. Yeah, let's do that. And then in verses 12 through 15, the edict goes out through the entire empire. Remember, that empire spans from Ethiopia all the way to India, this huge empire. And they say, 11 months from today, basically, wherever you are, if you know Jewish people, make sure that they are destroyed. A whole genocide has been planned. I take this passage at face value for us. On one hand, in our day and time, we are not facing something nearly this serious potential genocide, even though there are people groups around the world that do face genocide, like Uyghurs in Western China. On the other hand, whatever evils we do face are often unasked for. And I think that's the theme of chapter three. There's this man and he's got it out for the Jews because of Mordecai and he wants to destroy all the Jews. He wants to commit genocide across this vast territory and none of those people ask for it. None of those people ask to face the, the evil that they were facing. And I think that's true a lot of times of the evil that we have to face. However small that may be, often it's unasked for. Shakespeare plays this out, this unasked for reality of evil with his most evil character, Iago, in the play Othello. Iago is evil from the very beginning. He's got it out for Othello and nobody really knows why. He manipulates Othello's wife against him. He eventually plots their murder-suicide. It's an incredibly dark play. And there's a great scholarly debate about why Iago is so evil. I, I probably went too deep on this this week. It snowed, there was not much going on, so I read about the scholarly debate. Some people think Iago is evil because he's got spite because he lost a promotion. But you don't do the wicked things that Iago does just because you lost a promotion, do you? Some people think that he's motivated by jealousy or revenge. Well, Othello gets all the women and he's after my wife. But these are only subtle clues you get throughout the play. No one significant reason is ever given in the play for Iago's ruthless evil. He's evil just because. This is mostly how the play reads. The best modern version of Iago is the Batman's Joker. He's evil just for the sake of it. And of course, both of those figures, Iago and the Joker, are really just representations of the kind of evil that Christians believe about Satan, the arch demon. Because biblically speaking, outside of some verses in Isaiah, outside of some verses in Jude and 2 Peter, there's actually not a lot given in the Bible about the downfall of the angels and why there's evil in the first place. Why was there a snake in the garden in Genesis 3 tempting Adam and Eve? How did evil even come to be? The Bible doesn't answer that why question very thoroughly, to be honest. The Bible just accepts it at face value that we face evil. That's not a very satisfying reality, is it? Sometimes we just face evil from someone else or from circumstances and we don't always know why. But I do believe all of us will face it. It might be in the small form of a slight from a colleague at work and you don't know why. It might be in a much bigger form of evil that you face in realistic or real abuse and many of you have faced that. At the very least, though, I think we need to all admit that at times we will face evil without knowing why. Now, 21st century Americans, we don't like to think about death, and therefore we really don't like to think about evil, and so we kind of stick our head in the sand on this kind of thing a lot. There's a conservative way to ignore the reality of evil, and there's a liberal way to ignore the reality of evil. The conservative way to ignore the reality of evil is just to assume, well, if I'm just nice and winsome towards everyone else, everyone else will be nice and winsome towards me. Be nice to everybody and you'll get nice in return. Now, I think Christians should be nice. But it is not always true that people will be nice in return. I could give you a lot of examples from my experience at college just down the road at the University of Tennessee where I was reviled for being a Christian even though I was really nice. That's the conservative way to ignore the reality of evil that we sometimes face. Why am I facing this? I'm a nice person. There's a liberal way, on the other hand, to ignore the reality of evil. And it goes like this. Just mind your own business. Don't worry about other people. Especially don't worry about what happens in their bedroom. Just ignore people, put your head down, and nothing bad will happen to you. We could just... Take that example of the sexual revolution, for instance, though, and say that that kind of logic ignores the reality of the sexual revolution because we don't just have sexual behavior in American life anymore. We have sexual identities. And because sexual identities demand to be acknowledged by everyone, they should therefore be acknowledged as a political class, to use legal terms. In other words, even if you wanted to ignore what people did in their bedrooms, their identities will not ignore you. Of course, there are other ways this plays out too besides sexual identities. I'm just using that as an example. What I'm trying to get you to understand is just by ignoring others, that will not mean you won't face evil. Neither by trying to be everyone's friend nor ignoring everyone will it equate to not having to face evil in your life. You will face evil in your life. Now, I don't want to get too far down this road because it sounds like I'm going in a culture war direction and you normally know if you're Been a part of Church of the Redeemer for any length of time. You know, I normally try to avoid culture war directions. That's why it's so important we move on to point number two, to measure an evil time, the measure of an evil time. Let's move on to chapter four in Esther to see this. I'm going to summarize some of the early verses here. In verses 1-3 through three of chapter 4, Mordecai learns about the plot to destroy all the Jews, and so he begins to lament. He rips off his clothes, he puts sackcloth and ashes on, and he begins to wail at the king's gate, which is definitely not something you're supposed to do. Esther finds out about it in verse 4 through an intermediary, and then she sends an intermediary to talk to Mordecai. She's worried. She's like, Yeah, hey, you're not supposed to do this. Don't do that at the king's gate. And Mordecai responds, and he says... Hey, you know, you could do something about this, Esther. You're in a kind of a powerful position now. And she goes, no, I'm really kind of actually not. She says, you know, the king's in the inner court, and you can't go into the inner court uninvited, because if you do, you're, you're risking your life. And then she said, furthermore, I haven't been invited into the inner court in the last 30 days, presuming us to assume that she's kind of fallen out of favor with the king now, so she's basically saying, uh, Mordecai, I can't do anything about this because I would die. And then Mordecai responds, if you're familiar at all with Esther, not everyone is, I know, but if you're familiar with Esther, he responds with some of the better known verses in the entire book. This is verse 12 of chapter 4. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Remember from last week, God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but this is a statement of faith. Mordecai knows the promises of the Old Testament. He knows that the Jews won't completely perish. He knows the deliverance will come from some other place. But then he says... had ordered him. Mordecai is confident in the deliverance of the people, but he says, but Esther, how do, we, how do we not know that you are the reason that the Lord has put into this position? How do we not know that you're going to be the cause of our deliverance? we got to at least try. If I were to sum up chapter 4 then, I'd say that Mordecai and Esther were trying to take stock of the risk involved with combating their evil time. How evil is it really? Is this a serious threat to all of the Jews across the whole kingdom? And if it is, shouldn't Esther risk her life? In other words, they were measuring the evil they were facing and judging what kind of courage was required. They were measuring the evil they were facing and judging what kind of courage is required. And this is something, friends, that we are woefully bad at as Americans. To measure the evil we face appropriately because we can overstate the evils we face and we can understate the evils we face. This is not the first time I'm going to mention that 2024 is an election year, but we often overstate the evils we face because we pitch the evils that we face in political language a lot of times. And every four years, without fail, shrill political commentators on the left or the right, people that I know in, around town, some of you will say to me, this is the most important election of our lifetime. And I hear it. Every four years. And so I'm left to wonder how many most important elections of our lifetime are we gonna have? (laughs) Friends, we overstate the evil we face. None of us are facing an Esther type danger or a Frodo like one, I dare say. On the other hand, we can understate the evils we face. Given that this past week we had a Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we might do well to remember that MLK was imprisoned for lawful and peaceful protest in Birmingham. And in Birmingham, he wrote a letter to several white pastors and he excoriates what he calls the white moderate because these people agreed with Martin Luther King's goals of desegregation, but they disagreed with his approach, nonviolent resistance. And so this is what he wrote in letter from birmingham jail i have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the black man's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the ku klux klaner but the white moderate who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension as opposed to a positive peace, peace which is the presence of justice the white moderate who paternalistically feels he can set the timetable for another man's freedom the white moderate who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the black man to wait for a more convenient season. King was saying that you can understate the evil that you face. If there's something you can do about it, if there's something you can do about the evil you're facing, if you can bring justice to a situation, then you ought to do it. This was Mordecai's argument to Esther. Yeah, you might put your life at risk, but you can do something about this more than anyone else. You can overstate the evil time that you face. You can also understate it. So, how do we rightly measure the evil time that we do face? How do we rightly measure the evil time that we do face? Professor Alan Jacobs at Baylor talks about increasing your personal density in his book, Breaking Bread with the Dead. Increasing your personal density. Personal density is your ability to psychologically and spiritually withstand the forces of the moment. Our political media, your social media feeds, the urgency of stress at work, all of these things that try to distract our attention to say, this is the most important thing you're dealing with at this time. If you succumb to them easily, you are a thin person. But if you can withstand psychologically and spiritually the pressures of the age, you have personal density. The person who has to respond to every post, the person who has to check every phone notification, the person who's always locked into the news, this is a thin person, easily swayed by external factors. So how do we become more personally dense then? How do we become someone who is so dense spiritually, psychologically, morally, that we are not swayed and pushed around by what we do happen to face? And Jacob says you have to develop what he calls chronological bandwidth. I know I'm throwing a lot of terms at you, but stick with me. Chronological bandwidth, chronological meaning time. And Jacob says, you need to stretch your density into the past and you need to stretch your density into the future. Well, how do you do that? With the past, Jacob says, you need to know history. Whenever someone says, we're facing the the worst thing of all time, I, if you know history, you can know whether it was the worst thing of all time. We heard a lot this week, this is the worst snowstorm in the Knoxville area in 31 years. That's because we know the history. So do you read history? Do you know Christian history? Do you know the Bible's history? And not just do you know history, but do you read old books by people who have long been dead? I don't know, like Shakespeare or Martin Luther King. Do you understand and know the past. And if you do, you are stretched into the past and you have more chronological bandwidth. Alternatively, Jacobs talks about the future and he says the way you get stretched into the future is you know the Christian story. You know that there is going to be someone who writes all wrong someday, Jesus Christ. And you trust that there will be justice at the end of time and you long for it, you desire it so much so you pray the prayer of Advent, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And the more you're stretched into the future, the more chronological bandwidth you have. And the more you're stretched into the past, and the more you're stretched into the future, you have personal density. Then a little ice on a Sunday morning does not affect you. I've been getting for years, I stopped when I changed my email address, but I'm beginning a year, a weekly email from Voice of the Martyrs, which is stories of Christians who are being persecuted or killed all over planet Earth. When you get that email, friends, like a little sickness or a little ice helps you have chronological bandwidth. Chronological bandwidth will give you the right wisdom with which to measure the evil time that you actually face. So if you are actually facing real evil, you can actually face it really, really well. You won't ignore the evils that you can address. If you are placed like Esther is to address the particular evils that you can, you'll have courage to know when the right time is to act. Because you've been feasting on the past, you'll know when your time is right. And because you've been feasting on the future, you won't be afraid of the negative consequences that you'll face. And like Esther, you can say, if I perish, I perish. Cultivate chronological bandwidth and let courage take its own part. Now, I thought about preaching a whole other point on courage, but there's going to be a lot more to say about courage in Esther's story in the coming weeks. So more on that next week. I think it's important to, for all of us to know that we will face evils at some point and we'll know the right measure to act when we have chronological bandwidth, when we stretch ourselves into the past and to the future and know how we act in the present. And it seems to me that both of those themes converge at Christ's crucifixion as well. He was all the time in the Gospels talking about the evils that he must face in the cross. And he was always saying, especially in the book of John, oh, my hour is not yet come, my time is not yet come, oh, now my time has come. He was always talking about his time and he was always talking about the evil that he had to face. And unlike the salvation that Esther will help lead, where she and all the Jews were spared, uh, spoiler alert, Esther saves all the Jews and she gets saved herself. But unlike Esther, Jesus secures a salvation where he wasn't spared. How can we be motivated to face the evils that we will face head on? Knowing that our Savior is a greater Esther who faced the evils for us, who faced our evils, my evil, for me, so that we might be a people who feast on his story and gain chronological bandwidth. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what evils everyone is facing this morning, but you do. And I pray, by your spirit, you would empower us to remember Jesus who faced the mother of all evils, and Esther, And give us the courage that we need. However small, however big, would you meet us here today? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.